Do you remember when the best game that you could play on your phone was Snake? In 1998, Snake was preloaded on Nokia phones, and it was massively popular. If you're on the younger side of the audience, you may not remember what Snake is. You can take a look at the show notes to see a picture from Snake. It's a very primitive game. But that same year, in 1998... Half-Life won Game of the Year on PC. This was a first-person shooter with excellent 3D graphics. Metal Gear Solid came out for PlayStation. The first version of StarCraft also came out in 1998. This was a real-time strategy game with excellent graphics and lots of interaction and animations. In 1998, few people would have anticipated that games with as much interactivity as StarCraft would be played on mobile phones 20 years later. Today, mobile phones have the graphics and the processing power of a desktop gaming PC from two decades ago. But one thing still separates desktop gaming from mobile gaming, the network. With desktop gaming, users have a reliable, wired connection that keeps their packets moving over the network with speeds that let them compete reliably with other users. With mobile gaming, the network can be flaky. How do we architect real-time strategy games that can be played over an intermittent network connection? Yen Chui is an engineer at Space Ape Games, a company that makes interactive multiplayer games for mobile devices. In a previous episode, Yen described his work re-architecting a social networking startup called Yubble, where the costs had gotten out of control. That's a great episode, and I recommend checking it out if you have not heard it. It's called Serverless Startup. Yen has a skill for describing a software architecture and explaining the trade-offs. When architecting a multiplayer mobile game, there are so many trade-offs to consider. What do you build and what do you buy? Do you centralize your geographical deployment to make it easier to reconcile the conflicts that are inevitably going to occur? Or do you spread your server deployment out globally? What is the interaction between the mobile clients and the server? The question of interaction between client and server for a mobile game has lessons that are actually important for anyone building a highly interactive mobile application. This is a pattern that you sometimes see in computer science where the cutting edge is often done at the gaming application type where games are at the cutting edge of something like computer graphics, which leads to developments in processors uh, like GPUs, which lead to uh, a new tool that machine learning people can use. So games are actually quite important in the evolution of computer science. So one example I think about in highly interactive mobile applications is Uber. When I make a request for a car, I can look at my phone and I can see the car on the map slowly approaching me. The driver can look at his phone and he can see the passenger. He can see if the passenger crosses the street and if he needs to go to one side of the street or the other in order to pick up that passenger. And this real-time communication is accomplished by synchronizing the data from the driver's phone and the passenger's phone in a centralized server and then sending the synchronized state of the world back out to me and the driver. So how much data does the centralized server need to get from the mobile phones in order to create that synchronized state? How often does the centralized server need to make the requests to each mobile phone? 
the answers to these questions are going to vary based on the bandwidth and the device type and the phone battery life and all these other factors. And just like an Uber, when you're trying to figure out how often do I need to ping the mobile phones in order to keep an updated state of what is going on in the different mobile phones, you've got similar problems in mobile game engineering because the users are in different places on a virtual map. The users are fighting each other. They're trying to avoid enemies. They're trying to steal power-ups from each other. A mobile game can be even more interactive than a ride-sharing app like Uber. So the questions of data synchronization can be even harder to answer. And we go into great detail in this episode with Yen Chui. On Software Engineering Daily, we have explored this topic of real-time data synchronization in our past episodes about the infrastructure of Uber and Lyft. And you can find these old episodes by downloading the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android. In other podcast players, you can only access the most recent 100 episodes. But with these apps, you can find all of our episodes, and they're indexed with a nice UI that's custom-built for Software Engineering Daily listeners. And with these apps, we're building a new way to consume content about software engineering, and it's all open source. You can find it at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open source project to hack on, we would love to get your help. And with that, let's get on to this episode with Yen Chui. Yen Chui, you are an engineer at Space Ape Games. You have been on previously to discuss your time at Yubble, which was a social networking startup. And in that episode, you discussed your refactoring of of Yubble. And it was a really, really popular episode where you know you were talking about just all this refactoring and this efficiency gains that you got that were ultimately undermined by the problems of the business the fundamental problems of the business but but it's great to have you back yen it's great to be back jeff uh, thanks a lot for for getting me back on here absolutely and and today we're talking about a more optimistic scenario. You have started this job at Space Ape Games. You've been working there for a while, and I watched a presentation that you gave about scalable multiplayer games, and I'm excited to dive into that. I thought we should just start off by talking a little bit about the growth of mobile games, because I've not covered this at all. These mobile games, I I think we've basically, you know, the, the amount of time people spend playing console games has probably dropped, or perhaps mobile games are complementary to that. Why don't you just talk about your perspective on the growth of mobile gaming? Yeah, so from what was, well, so I guess going back a couple of years ago, I was at a company called Gamesys, where I was building, again, uh, casual games, but mostly on Facebook. And straight away, even during that couple of years, maybe two, three years, when Facebook games was the was the biggest thing around, you have all these games that's got 200 million users, daily active users, but pretty quickly, that landscape shifted to mobile, and that mobile space has just continued to grow. And compared to, I guess, console games, it definitely be on a, on a decline. At the same time, we are seeing mobile games that are getting more sophisticated and are getting more core as well. For a very long time, mobile games was very focused on the casual audience, but now we're seeing games that are more and more targeting towards the core gamers. And this perhaps even more so in, I guess, in the East, in the Far East, than maybe in the West. 
one of the things we see often as well is that the you know, the mobile games in the West um, they are still kind of you know soft kind of mid core, whereas the the games on the uh, on the Far East is now going much more focused on real time gameplay. But we are still we are slowly seeing that trend happening in the West as well. If you look at some of the top grossing games in 2017, I think in the in the West, uh, maybe 13 of the top 100 grossing games uh, has been has got a real time multiplayer element to it. And uh, if you look at the absolute biggest game in the 2017, is a game by a Chinese company Tencent, who you may or may not have heard of. They're quickly becoming the well, if not already, the king of mobile games in the world, and mm. they own something like ninety percent of Supercell, who in turn owns about seventy percent of Space Ape Games, where I'm working. So you <laughs> see that the so, uh, family tree there. And Supercell, as you as you probably know, they are the creator for top grossing games in the West, uh, games like Clash of Clans and uh, Clash Royale, and the, the and Tencent. They have been. They have a number of uh, you know, massive hits that you, you may have heard about in the West, but they are doing fantastically well. And the top grossing game in 2017 is a, is a 5v5 real-time multiplayer game that Tencent has, uh, has created. And is, you can think of it as a League, of, a League of Legends clone. And they are doing something, some crazy number, something like over $400 million uh, monthly revenue as recorded by, I think, Bloomberg and something around 80 million daily active users. Those are pretty scary numbers. And and they have only just moved to the West recently and they've rebranded, they've done the UI, the, some of the styling has changed for the Western audience, whereas in the East it's much more focused around the fantasy theme and they've adapted for the, the Western audience as well. Uh, but those most of those numbers are coming mostly from China alone, which just goes to show the, the, some of the potential that's available in this space. Well, in five five v five real time competition is quite an engineering problem too. When you think about ten people running around in virtual space fighting each other over an intermittent network connection. That's not an easy problem to solve, and the like. The closest analog for, in terms of the shows that I've done, that comes to mind is is Uber, where you have the car that you summon, and then you 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 look on your phone on the map, and the car is like slowly climbing across the street, and then you see it turn, and then it like spins, and like, you know, it's. Just trying to synchronize the real-time actions of a car and a person who has summoned the car, that is still not something that we, we could really do. So when I think about uh, trying to synchronize the actions of 10 independent people, it sounds pretty hard. It's definitely a very interesting uh, technical challenge for sure. Uh, as you said, uh, you know, um, I had that same problem the other day as I was leaving a conference. I was waiting for my Uber and I have no idea where the car actually is because the updates comes every, I don't know, <laughs> once every minute it seems. Uh, whereas for this kind of game, they're talking about having to send 10 to 20 inputs per second per player and you're super sensitive to any kind of lag. And from what we can see from our own tests, uh, anything beyond 
beyond 300 millisecond round trip. So from you sending an input from your device to it hitting a server and coming back to your device, anything over 300 millisecond, you can start to feel it. So in terms of engineering, it does have some really unique challenges in this particular space. And it does mean that you have to you have to make decisions that you probably wouldn't have to in many other spaces. For example, it's quite common in this uh, in this particular space to have to deploy your game servers all over the world so that you can uh, have your infrastructure as close to your customers uh, as, you, as your players as possible, but also making sure that when you match players together, they're in the same geolo- uh, geographical location so that everyone gets the best experience uh, possible and you you know you don't have matches where you are winning just because the your your opponents is having a worse uh, network latency than you are and also we are uh, we're trying to make our games so that they can perform reasonably well in countries with a poor uh, bandwidth and uh, we have run alpha tests in both Netherlands uh, for the game I'm working on in both Netherlands as well as the Philippines. And that in the difference in the in the networking, both the, the speed as well as the bandwidth is quite drastic, is quite different. So a lot of that, you have to factor those things into account when designing your, your protocols, making sure that you're using, you're being very efficient in terms of bandwidth, but also uh, your, you know, your server have to be very performance so that you spend as little time as possible on a server. And then there's still a whole, a whole bunch of you know, tuning around the, the CCP layer. And we also have, we're also implementing a reliable UDP right now as well. And we can, we can talk a bit more about the different approaches available. Uh, none of the things we're doing right now is really, I guess, groundbreaking. Uh, it's, it's all common sense. It's the things that people have done already in this space. But when you're trying to make them work on mobile, there are some additional challenges that you have to t- uh, take into account. Let's start with just the idea of 10 players or even just two players that are on different network connection speeds. If I'm on a very slow and intermittent network connection and I'm fighting against you and you're on a extremely good network connection, what kinds of conflicts can those create in a real-time game? So that would depend on the approach you're going with. Uh, for a lot of the traditional real-time strategy games, they use an approach, what do what they call lockstep. So essentially, you have a peer-to-peer network between all the players in the match. And the problem with that space is that if one person experiences a lag, then everybody experiences a lag. So a common approach that you find with uh, mobile games that are doing real-time multiplayer uh, or, or, or strategy or multi- just, just um, battle arena type of games is that you may still be doing lockstep, but you are send the lockstep happens via the server. So if one player experiences a lag, he's the only one that experiences lag in that in that match, rather than impacting everybody in the match. Uh, and also, there's significant trade-off between whether or not you want to have the server be the authoritative. So, you know, all the state changes happen on the server and the server broadcasts state changes uh, in Delta, the deltas in the state to all the players. Or you just have the players send inputs to each other and have the synchronization happen on the client side. So they minimize the amount of data they have to tra- get transferred. And also, you do you do certain you do certain tricks with uh, with the client as well, making it so that as you as you as you send an input to to the server, you start to render some of the changes based on the assumption that what you send will be received uh, from the server within a reasonable amount of, t- amount of time. So you apply a predictive model to the UI rendering so that 
the visually the, the feedback is much more immediate compared to what actually happens under the hood when the data gets transferred over the network to the server and back and then you update the internal model for on the client which also means that you need to have a determinism on the client side as well, which, uh, funny enough, with Unity 3D, the game engine, there's a well-known determinism problem when it comes to floating point uh, calculations. So we also had to implement the fixed point maps ourselves as part, of our, uh, as part of our game as well. So if you have people that are moving around on a map uh, and then they're sending their movements to the server... The server is going to be authoritative about whether those, like what circumstances those movements will resolve to, but the clients can make predictions about those movements. So if I move from one point in the map to another point in the map that is uh, open space, I'm just walking across a grassy field and there's no enemies on the grassy field, my client side device, my phone, can make a prediction that. The, the server is going to be completely fine with that movement. I'm moving across a field that's totally fine. So even if the network connection drops off and you know my, my packet is received, but it takes a while for the server to send you know the, the next packet that defines the next set of states across this big map, everything's going to be okay because my client-side device can just say, okay, well, we're just going to make a prediction about what's where you're going to move to and you're going to move along that grassy field and it's going to be totally fine but where that gets problematic is let's say my client side device makes you know prediction that I'm moving along the grassy field and then it turns out that an enemy has been moving towards that area of the grassy field as well and the server uh, you know after my internet intermittent network connection reconnects the server tells me uh, hey you just encountered an enemy but on my client-side device, my client-side device has just been predicting that, oh, you're just walking along a grassy field. So you can encounter these problems with the client-side prediction conflicting with what the server calculates is the actual reality. So what are some approaches to avoiding those types of conflicts or resolving them as they occur? So the simplest approach would be to just limit how far the prediction model can take you. So you can so the the client side prediction model can deviate from the last last known uh, good state that's been confirmed the server. So you allow the the, the client side prediction model to maybe deviate by certain amount of actions before you get confirmation from the server. And one of the things you could do is, uh, and this is something that uh, um, we see a lot of mobile uh, similar mobile games do, is to once you get to the point where you are deviating a bit too much to either slow down the action, so it looks like your character is not moving as fast, or in some cases, just you know, put you know, grind everything to a stop and just you know, put your hands up and say, okay, I can't predict anymore. I need to know from the server what the next action is. And um, that can happen if you have intermittent connectivity issues uh, from the server. So you have a, little, a, a, a spike in latency, for example. I see. So to to put a finer point on this, you define two different ways of modeling the client-server relationship in a, a game. You have this continuous centralized model, the server authoritative model, and then you have this lockstep model. Could you walk us through these two models? Sure. So with the server authoritative model, the, the, the game state is only on a server, and as the 
as the players move around, they you know they, they they move from one part of the world to another part of the world. Maybe they will shoot at somebody. Those inputs are then sent to the server, and the and there are consequences depending on how sophisticated the game is. It may just be taken at that moment in time when a server receives the input. But for some games such as Overwatch and uh, a few other games, they would they would do something a bit more sophisticated. They will walk backwards, work out when the when the based on latency when the event actually happened on a device. So they, they and then reapply some of the changes to the game state. And then send and then broadcast out on an interval all the deltas in the game state to all the connected players, so that they can update things on their side. So this approach is easier because, in in, in many sense, because uh, you don't have to worry about player cheating. Uh, so it's quite hard to cheat in this uh, in this setting because the server controls all the state changes, and uh, the server. But at the same time, you end up sending a lot more data to all of the players. Uh, which means uh, on the client side, on uh, you have this a have a, um, a better network connectivity, and also you're using a lot more bandwidth, which in other in countries like Philippines and China is not as readily available, or is as is or is compared to the West. And then the lockstep approach would be uh, again the client is sending input to the server, uh, and the server is buffering them up into say and then and then into frames of uh, say 15 frames or 20 frames a second. And then on every frame, you send out all the buffered inputs from all the players to everybody, so that when I as I move around on my device, my input is sent to the server, but maybe I don't get it back for another 60, 80, or 100 milliseconds because you need to do that round trip. But also, you don't take into account the time it takes to buffer everything up for for one frame on the server. But I only get my input as well as everybody else's input back. Uh, but because all the clients now received all the inputs from everybody in the same sequence, so they can apply those uh, updates to their state. So you move uh, frames onwards on, this, on the client side, and everybody, all the clients would do the same thing to their internal model. So that's how they achieve a consistency. Mm-hmm. The problem with this approach is that now it's... Um, possible for uh, for people to cheat if they were able to hack the client or maybe reverse engineer the um, apk for example because at the end of the match who you know all the clients now the owner of the state so they can say you know what i win them i won a match uh, and then they will you have to somehow report the result of a match to the server and the server would then have to validate those results uh, that you collect from everybody okay i didn't quite understand how you could do cheating in the lockstep model. So maybe you can explain that a little bit later, but I, I guess I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. So the, the server authoritative model is more of a streaming model where at any given time, if I've got a client, I can send my, uh, my state and my changes to the, the server, and the server is going to respond to me with other updates that it's received from people but in the lockstep model, um, uh, sorry. Oh, so, so for the server authority model, you are sending your input, but you're receiving from the server updates to the state for the for the entire game world. So you would. Uh, so for example, I would mm-hmm. say, okay, for my character, I've moved the north, uh, and uh, but when I, what I get back would be my character's new position in the world, as well as the position for every other character in the same match. Mm-hmm. 
as well as maybe if the world is a dynamic world where, uh, I don't know, volcanoes will fire or something else will happen, right. those state changes to the game world would also be, t- uh, be uh, sent back to you from the server as well. But in the lockstep model, I can send updates to the server however frequently I want, but my received global state changes that involve everybody else's moves, those are going to be batched. So everybody's uh, inputs get buffered, and then they get calculated in some batch, and then every, you know, n milliseconds or whatever, there is a lockstep, and the lockstep sends a multicast message to all the clients that are involved, all of the updated state. Do I am I contra- contrasting this correctly? Uh, so the lockstep and the, so lockstep both lockstep and the server authority involve some batching and they involve multicasting at a, at a certain frame rate. The difference is whether or not the server is sending you game state changes or just inputs from everybody. And the lockstep approach would be the server sent you inputs for everybody rather than the, the game state changes because oh. the server doesn't have the game state. Is oh. the, the clients are authoritative in this case of the game of the game state. Wow. Okay. So in the lockstep model, the client just gets deltas from the other clients essentially. Yeah. That are, that so, are- so I move forward, I move backwards, and those are inputs that I'm sending to the server, and those mm-hmm. are inputs that I get back in the lockstep approach, but also get back from the uh, from the server all the inputs for everybody else. So in this case, it would be Jeff, uh, his character moved forward. He's now aiming at uh, at the forty degree angle. Right. So so the, so the server authoritative model is and now I understand that the the hacking problem in the lockstep model because the the clients are essentially they're each individually responsible for for deciding on the game state which should be totally fine if if all of the clients send the moves that they have made throughout the game and then those moves get multicast by the server to the rest of the clients there should be no issue there at all they should be uh, be able to derive the same game state because they each have the same set of moves that they have aggregated from each of the other clients but the problem is that ultimately the calculating is done by the clients so if i'm one client or or even all five of the clients if we were talking about this five by five game and all five of the clients somehow reverse engineer the APK, uh, the the package, uh, the software package. They could they could say, oh, you know what? Um, actually, we calculated that we won this game, and the other team would be saying, no, we calculated we won this game. And then you could you know you could have some sort of problem there because the clients are deciding on the ultimate calculated end game state. That's right. Which is why you have then you still then have to have a mechanism for doing server-side validation based on inputs. So run, this, run the simulation on a server to have then to decide what is the authoritative answer for what's the, what's the end game state. Oh, okay. So uh, at Space Ape, 
the game that you're working on or the games that you're working on, you typically use the lockstep model? We have two games that are uh, that we that we've been working on. That's a real-time multiplayer. The one that the, the one that I'm working on right now is using the lockstep approach. Another game is using a slightly different variant where the simulation for the AI components. So you know, imagine if you play League of Legends, you have those uh, creeps, right? You have those towers. So they also have AI uh, AI as well. In the, in the lockstep scenario that I've described to you, every client will be running the simulation, the AI for those uh, for, for those things. But there's also a slightly small, a slight variant whereby you will have a master client that are doing the calculation for the AI, and he will then broadcast any any changes to this to the AI state to everybody else. So one of our other games is using that variant. Mm. Which has a uh, which in terms of bandwidth and uh, and bandwidth use is uh, slightly more expensive than the lockstep, but it's still a lot better compared to server authoritative. So the trade off that we're talking about here is primarily in the bandwidth because in the server authoritative model, it sounds great because the server is resolving all of the moves of everybody, and the server decides on a game state, and then the server can just broadcast the game state to all the users. But the problem there is that if you need to broadcast the entire game state to all the users, that is a lot of bandwidth. Whereas in lockstep, uh, you can just broadcast the essentially the diffs of each move and have the clients do the calculation because the you know doing having the clients do the calculation you're going to be much less uh, bandwidth constrained when you just are just sending the change change set of the moves that's right and uh, we know for many people from uh, talking to other companies that's, uh, that's built this, uh, these kind of games that your biggest cost when it comes to operating these kind of games in uh, in uh, a scale is going to be bandwidth but also it impacts your users experience especially in those co- uh, countries where bandwidth is much more scarce compared to uh, you know if, if you're in the west another factor to consider is that running server-side simulation is can be really expensive so you also have to run a lot more servers as well so when we're talking about these mobile games in contrast to the classic multiplayer games like Counter-Strike or StarCraft. These these games are typically played over high bandwidth wired connections. Do they have a totally different model for the multiplayer, you know, different client and server resolutions because they have those uh, lower bandwidth constraints? Uh, yes, I I, oh, I think so. I haven't looked at uh, we've done a lot of research looking mm-hmm. at other other games too. Uh, League of Legends, Dota, Dota Two, Call of Duty, uh, a number of other games that are that are primarily play on a desktop uh, on on Wi-Fi connections. They are all using server authoritative mm-hmm. or some variants of that. Whether or not you're sending the whole state on every frame can optimize to just send deltas as well. But even those deltas are still going to be a lot more than the pure user inputs. Whereas compared to when you look mm. at mobile games, and I keep going to the same game by Tencent, because those guys, they have to work in the constraint of you know, <laughs> being being a game that's played on the 3G in a country like China, where bandwidth is uh, something like uh, number seven, 70th in the world, and have to make that work really well. And those guys, they use... Um, 
the lockstep uh, approach, which is one of the things that we looked at and see, okay, do we want our games to be, you know, to have a global reach? Do we want to go to markets like China, like Southeast Asia, where we're going to have to think about these kind of problems? So we made the decision quite early on that as much as we think civil authority is going to be a lot easier to implement in many ways, given the sort of conditions that we want our app to be, to uh, our game to be played in, we decided to go with the lockstep approach. Well, what you said there with a game like League of Legends, uh, where it's primarily played over maybe a T1 connection or some some other kind of wired connection, even then, you there's a gradient between server authoritative and lockstep because you can take the different actions of all the users and you can find you can you can find some overall change set to the game environment that is that takes into account all of the individual changes uh, from the users. So even then, you don't necessarily need to send the entire calculated overall game state over the wire. You're just sending some conglomeration of the different uh, users' changes uh, multicasted to people, and then you can still have the clients derive the new game state uh, from that. So I'm just saying that to emphasize the fact that this is a gradient between server authoritative and lockstep. That's right. That's because another thing to consider is that for games like um, uh, League of Legends, you you have more than just the, the player control characters. You have those NPCs, you have those towers. So those are also game states that need to get broadcasted in the server authority model. So even if uh, you're only sending the delta for individual states, those can still really increase the, your bandwidth use as your game becomes more complex. So right now, the game that we're working on is played in the static environment, but we have, we have, we want to have the option to, in the future, make the game more dynamic, have the world be more uh, destructible, perhaps maybe have other character, other NPC that you can you can interact with, and for those who work and build scale those, still but, uh, but still have them playable in a country like China, then the you no. Know, those questions, we need to think about them ahead of time. And that's also one of the things that, that factor into our mind when we decided to go with the lockstep approach. And how does that affect game design itself? Because I can imagine you know, if you know that you're doing this particular type of networking in the game interactions, if you're smart about it, you can design a better game that's going to be less you know the interactions that take place in the game are going to be more (laughs) hesitate to use the word resilient because that's kind of overloaded in this conversation but the conflicts are not going to be as painful for the people on these low bandwidth connections so how does that affect game design it hasn't affected game design too much apart from the fact uh, apart from whether or not we will have the option to make the world more dynamic more expensive and mm. have n- introduced NPCs because uh, in terms of game, Sorry, uh, game NPC, design NPC is what? just say that uh, non-playa- uh, non-playable characters oh, got it so bots yes Right. So if you play a League of Legends, you have those bots that get spawned, and uh, they, you know, they, those are characters that you can also fight and also fight with you as well and these are expensive because the server is is essentially running these bots and the more uh dynamism you have that is shared state between people the more you're going to have to send over the network that's right hmm. 
fascinating. So, so if you're using the server authoritative approach and trying to make it work on mobile, then that will put a constraint in terms of how dynamic you can make the world. Hmm. Whereas with the lockstep approach where you only send an input, then you can make the world as, as, as interesting, as uh, dynamic as you want, so long that the simulation doesn't cause your phone to hear because it's doing too much rendering. Hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about some other implementation details. Uh, one thing you emphasized in a talk that I saw you give was that you want to deploy these kinds of games to multiple geographic locations because, you know, if you have a game like 5 by 5 it's a 5 by 5 5-on-5 war game, all you need is 10 people. You don't actually need the entire network. Like, something like Facebook, you need a global, synchronized deployment because if somebody in China comments on a post that I made, we want that update to happen aggressively. But if you're talking about a game where you just have 10 people that are engaged in a real-time interaction, ideally you would just want all 10 of those people in a geographically local environment. Like you want to have all 10 people in the United States, like if if you've got uh, ten people in the United States that log on to play, and you've got ten people in China that log on to play, the ideal world is you've got a server in China that has the 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 server that's hosting the battle between those ten people in China, and then another one in the U.S. that hosts those battles between the the ten people in the U.S. So, why don't you contrast the you know deployment of a globally synchronized application like Facebook with a locally synchronized application like a like a multiplayer game yeah you're absolutely right and that's the that's the design goal that we have as well that uh, you have a server that uh, the, the real-time multiplayer server deployed geographically uh, close to your user so like you said if 10 people are playing in china they will all be playing real time against the server that's hosted in China or very close to China. And the 10 people that are playing in the US will be playing on a server that's closest to them. And all of that should happen automatically without the players having to do anything. So when you go into the game, you say, I want to start a match. Automatically, you should be match uh, matchmaked against uh, players that are in the same region as you, so that everyone is playing against the server uh, closest to them. So that means when we when it comes to deployment, we need to have uh, uh, have infrastructure that's closest to the to the players all over the world. But it's only we only need to do that for the the real time servers. There's still a lot of other infrastructure around managing your game, your player profile, managing purchases, and all these other things. Those can still be centralized in in one region. So you 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 can you can still save some of the operational overhead in terms of having a globally deployed infrastructure. Then there's a couple of things in terms of. Um, Doing that has impact on our game design. For example, if you have a leaderboard and you have uh, alliances or guilds and you have chat rooms, the, it brings about a question of should any should those things be global or regional? Uh, if you know people are chatting the game, should they all going to be coming uh, playing in the different parts of the world? They're going to be using different languages. Does it make sense for chat rooms to be uh, to be global or more regional? And also at the same time, if you're going to have uh, alliances and guilds, and you want to encourage people to start matches with their uh, with their friends in the guilds, and you still want them to be playing in the same ge- uh, geographical location, does that mean that those inf- those sort of game features should be global and or should they be region uh, to enforce some of those uh, uh, locality that you have in terms of the multiplayer 
uh, rules as well. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of different things that so comes up once you have this split of uh, uh, you know some some parts of infrastructure being global and some parts of it uh, being regional to optimize towards uh, player experience. Hmm. The last show that uh, I did with you was really fun because you were so good at describing the infrastructure for uh, the the social network Yubl that you were working on, and you know you talked about a lot of different managed services and. You know the shows that I'm that I've been hosting have been increasingly about how do you fit together these managed services. Oftentimes, because you know, like I did a show recently with Thumbtack, which was which is a uh, a marketplace for home services, and they have so many challenges in terms of how do you create a marketplace that works effectively. The business is pretty good because they have network effects and whatnot. So they would rather not have to think like a software company. They don't want to have to think about infrastructure and 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 uptime and scalability. They would rather purchase managed services that take care of all of that. You know, with a game, you can get, you know, if you get greedy on a game, you're going to end up paying very expensive, uh, very expensive infrastructure costs. So, you know, I think there, you talked about the, the trade-offs of build versus buy in, in this, in this talk that you gave about scalable multiplayer games. So I think it's, it's more of a nuanced conversation if we're talking about a game than a marketplace. So I say all that to preface, why don't you just give us an overview of the infrastructure of the game that you most recently worked on? Uh, so the game I'm working on right now is uh, a multiplayer game. I can't really talk too much about the game itself as uh, it's still under development. In terms of infrastructure, uh, as I mentioned already, this, we have game we have game ser- real time uh, game servers that are deployed to to multiple regions, uh, so that we have infrastructure globally for that. But the rest of our infrastructure are run out of uh, the same one region in US East one, where you have where the player profiles are stored, where uh, all of our uh, databases, a lot of a bunch of other services are all hosted out of there. And uh, in terms of the build versus buy, you have uh, several companies that are that are so operating this space. The biggest one is probably uh, Exit Games. They have a product called uh, Photon, which is essentially what we are building, but they offer it as a service, and it gives you some many of the things that we are you know, we are building already in terms of having the multi-region support. And they also have a lobby system out of the box as well. So hmm. for things like matchmaking, you can do, they have got a quite flexible system for you to do that. And also they have been around for something like 10, 15 years. So they have had a lot of time to optimize the networking stack and they can run they can run on their own soft layer infrastructure where hmm. it's all real you know, brick and mortar hardware so that you get a you get a much better networking, more consist I guess more consistent networking performance maybe than the the, the cloud hosted servers that we are using. Uh, but at the same time, there's also downsides to using a hosted, well, I guess a product like uh, Photon. Some based on the the pricing model they have, they can be quite expensive, oh. especially once you at scale. Uh, the way Photon works is that you pay for a provision the peak monthly connected the concurrent concurrently connected user. So if you have um, a hundred thousand people connected at at peak in the month. That's what you're paying for. So you have to you go back to this. I guess if that brings you back to the sort of KPEX versus or versus uh, OPEX, OPEX uh, yeah, yeah discussion. You know that people have at the start of the cloud. So you don't have that more you no know, 
flexible model of uh, pay as you uh, pay as you use, and you can you can go over those uh, peak provision the uh, usage level as well. And but when you do that, uh, you, they charge you quite a bit of extra. Uh, and I guess for us as a company, also as we're building more and more games that are real time, that has got a real time multiplayer element to it as well. Um, this question that it took us a very long time to decide whether or not we should you we should continue to build something in house or to just use Photon, especially as we already use Photon for some of our other prototype games, and uh, there's, a, there's quite a bit of experience in the company already, and we do really love what the uh, the X Games have done with the Photon product. But as a company, if we're going to be banking the, comp- the future of the company on all these real-time multiplayer games, we feel that there's uh, there's element of risk, there's element of uh, mm. uh, limiting the, the the risk and exposure that we have by owning the core, some of the core stack that we have. So it's like uh, so, Photon is some platform as a service that's kind of expensive, <laughs> but it's really good. But it's really <laughs> it's good. really good. Yeah. yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. So. But, you know, all the stuff that Photon takes care of for you, if you wanted to do that yourself, you would have to rewrite, like, a lobby system, and and it sounds like a lot of networking stuff that's that's difficult, and then also their networking stack is on soft layer, so it's in... I think, I think with soft layer, the advantage of soft layer is, like, you get directly deployed to, to bare metal rather than on AWS where you're deployed to virtual machines that are on bare metal. Is that right? That's right. And uh, the downside with using uh, bare metal machines is that, uh, and that's why Photon has that pricing model of the <laughs> peak usage level is how long it takes for them to provision additional hardware. Mm. And uh, and also on the other hand, uh, networking on Amazon Web Services has, has been you know, gradually improving and just recently, they announced support for the new C5 class of instances, and that has got some additional networking optimization that has done to that has been done to the instances type. I think in this case, it, it allows you to um, allows the networking to go through, to, you know, to get the real networking rather than a virtualized network. So we have tested it on the other 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 instance types that's using that has got the same support for the, uh, the same optimization and does make a big difference in terms of both the the latency well the latency as well as the, uh, the how much variance you see as well so networking on amazon is getting better and then we also because for the multiplayer servers we we can we, we're just going to run it on vm we're not dependent on other uh, managed services. So it means that we can also use Google Cloud as well, mm. which has got more expensive networking, but also by the, uh, by, from what we can gather is uh, also better networking as well. And it's interesting, Google has literally gone the other way where now they're offering cheaper but uh, worse networking capability to their VMs, whereas uh, Amazon is trying to improve their networking offering hmm. with uh, EC2. Hmm. So just, just to clarify... You have some of this game workflow on what was it called? Not Electron. What was the name of the, the service? Photon. Photon, right. Okay. So you've got some of your system on Photon, which is a platform as a service for game stuff. And then we have some games that are using Photon, oh, and, we, and and during the early prototype development, we were using Photon, but we made sure that our for our for the game that I'm working on, the networking layer is separate from the game layer, so that we can we able to have the same game run on both our own stack as well as on Photons, 
And in fact, when, and that's what allows us to run A-B tests when we went to uh, Netherlands and in the Philippines so that we can compare our implementation with Photon side by side to gauge how good our, uh, our implementation is. And one, and guess, guess one of the one of the big reasons for us to to decide to build our own is because we feel we have enough expertise in the company to take on this type of engineering task. Which, if you don't have, and many of the many of the companies that we know that work in this space, they may not have that same expertise. Then Photon absolutely makes sense. So this networking stack that we're talking about. This is the conversation that we were having at the beginning of the show. You, you like if you're using Photon, what you get some API into a lockstep networking model. Uh, so you still build some of those uh, protocol yourself. So with Photon, just they just give you the networking layer in terms of TCP uh, and, and the reliable UDP, but also allows you to write some code that runs on their own their server. So you can implement both the uh, server authoritative as well as lockstep between your custom server code on Photon as well as your client code. So so Photon is, uh, I can't stress this enough, is a great product and it's very, very flexible. Sure. Sure. No, I mean, this is like, I, I talk about, I'm, I'm always hawking Heroku because I, I mean, Heroku is a sponsor of the show, but also I like, I use Heroku all the time and I just, I love it. But there are certain products for which Heroku would just make zero sense. Like, if you're like a stock trading company, it probably would not make any sense to to be deployed to Heroku because you have such high bandwidth requirements and uh, and just also it just is going to eat into your margin eventually. And you just want to be I don't know maybe, maybe I mean I don't even know what I'm talking about, but basically this is just a, a discussion that you know the build versus buy of platform as a service versus infrastructure as a service is uh, a conversation that many companies are are having with themselves but when you're talking about this networking logic that photon takes care of for you that you are now implementing i know you're you know you, you you're in your talk you discussed the actor model maybe we can go into that but what exactly are they taking care of for you like cuz you you said you have to deploy your your self-written code that manages like what is going on in the server, what, how the lockstep stuff is going, but what exactly are they doing in terms of networking? Uh, so, well, they have they they take care of having deployments in multi regions so that you know they they can have uh, infrastructure that's deployed to. No, different data centers all around the world. Uh, you get that out of the box, and they also have a lobby system they get out of the box. You do still have to write a lot of custom code in terms of the communication between the client and server, but the client library they offer that gives you, you can out of the box, you can choose to say use a TCP, use UDP or reliable UDP, and all of those things that you have to implement yourself other, uh, otherwise at a protocol level. So they give you a lot of that out of the box. Mm. When you say implement something at the protocol level, what does that mean? So take the uh, TCP implementation as example. We're not just making a HTTP request with a JSON. So that, the, all, all that protocol, the, all that has is happening with a custom protocol, so that we can pack as, as uh, all the payload as as closely uh, as close as possible, so that we minimize the amount of bandwidth we're using. But also keeping, uh, but also managing the state, so that you have the concept of a match, how many players, and what the current state for those players. Photon makes makes 
all of a lot of those are very simple for you and you can plug in uh, your custom code so that you can do additional things i'm not that familiar with photon but <laughs> for my for my understanding all of that becomes a lot simpler with photon and you don't have to write a lot of the custom networking code that i've had to write myself i see things that Things that are managing uh, connections, reconnect, and uh, uh, matching a connection to a player to to a match, and all of that. And and this is is this why uh, I saw uh, I saw another presentation you gave recently about protocol buffers. So is this did did you have to write your own protobuf interface to describe the communication between the client and the server for the sake of of not being on Photon? Like, does Photon take care of the over the wire object representation for you? They can do, but in, for in our case, uh, because we want to have that that layered, that you can uh, you can you can swap out the photon client with uh, our own uh, client, talk to our own networking stack. So we end up having to write some of those ourselves in the end anyway, just so that we have that uh, portability. But in our case, uh, we are not just sending a port above uh, because port above can also have a quali- uh, also have uh, you know those tags as well, which means that you are sending a bit more data than and than the than we'd like. So we as we are using a custom, uh, uh, no, well, a protocol to communicate between the client and server. Mm. Interesting. Well, it sounds like Photon is really quite flexible, and you can basically. Uh, go as as low level as you want to, but if you want them to take care of things like over the wire object representation, they will figure that out for you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, that's my understanding as well. Okay, all right. Well, we won't speculate any further on Photon. <laughs> 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 Tell me more about your infrastructure. Like, what do you use for the database? For example, if you've got this real time state management that needs to be reconciled in. Well, I'm sorry. You well, you have a you have some servers that are some games that are doing the server authoritative model, and at least these servers have to do the real time state management. So, what's your durable store? Uh, so we don't. So for the match itself, all the state are stored inside. In this case, in our in, in our case, uh, an actor uh, in the actor, and uh, so we don't we don't save the the, the state. In the database, right there, doing the match, we do stream it out to via Kinesis, so that we can then, in the background, have another have a lambda function that will consume those Kinesis, those data, uh, consume those uh, stream of uh, inputs from very from different different matches and uh, persist them to S3 for the purpose of allowing you to spectate with a small delay wow. or to watch a match after the fact. And uh, because once data is in S3, it means that you can ex- expose them via CloudFront so that you don't have this problem of, okay, what if, uh, because, you know, you've made the game, uh, the game becomes popular, you want to make it into eSport and you want people to be able to watch other, you know, famous players uh, player right there in the app. How do you facilitate that in a way that doesn't affect the, the match experience itself? So that's how we are building all of uh, that. But in terms of the databases, um, there's a few different pieces of state to keep track of in terms of the, the status of the match, how many, uh, who's in them. All of those were just uh, just right now stored in the DynamoDB. And we have a bunch of uh, background stream processing. I'm a big fan of the whole event-driven uh, uh, model. <laughs> I know you well, are. <laughs> Uh, it makes it certainly makes life a lot easier. So from the per, from the point of view of the multiplayer server, it just broadcasts out all, a, a number of different events you know, to tell to tell outside world that a match has started. You know, this player has joined. You now here here's a new 
a second's worth of uh, inputs I've batched up, and then I can have other small other systems, uh, Lambda functions, often to consume those uh, events. And for example, we have a, a, a feature whereby when I start a match, if I'm inside a guild, my guild, uh, other people in my guild will get a notification via uh, in, inside the app that says, oh, you know, Yen has started a match. Do you want to join him? So they can see a button to join me right next to my name, or they can start to click another button to watch the match that I'm currently playing in. Mm. Okay. So all of those are coming out of the uh, one US East region, US East one region. Okay, that's awesome. So, so you've got all this... Individual clients are doing stuff. Their state gets aggregated on the central server in some form or fashion, and you're gonna uh, either send it out. To, you're gonna either stream it out to them, or you're going to send out updates in lockstep. We already discussed that to death, so maybe that's not so interesting at this point. But what is interesting is what you just mentioned, where you've also got Kinesis that is buffering the state. That of the centralized server and being written out to S3, and the S3 is like a hosting service for spectators. So now you've got these different game frames, and, and you know at the most granular level, I could imagine you could write out every single frame to S3, and then the 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 spectators would be just consuming frames uh, over S3. But I imagine it is much more efficient to get those frames and either batch them at the actor level and put them in on Kinesis in a certain batch or send every frame to Kinesis and then batch them in chunks off of Kinesis onto S3. So you've got some different tuning decisions you could make there. Uh, how do you evaluate that that batching of the rights to S3? So... We actually do both uh, both batching mm. on the actor level. So the actor would uh, send the inputs. You batch them. You send them out into uh, to the actual players in the match at uh, 15 frames a second or whatever. But it only sends the those inputs to uh, Kinesis for I think every three seconds or so. So that you get batching at that layer. And then when the Lambda function receives the inputs, there's a, there's a secondary batching there that happens before you rise to S3, uh, which is and then on the clients when you want to spectate and watch a live match, there's also buffering happening on that side as well so that the client will get the first binary, uh, the first blob which contains a bunch of frames and then you'll get the next blob next blob and so on so the client also get all the frames available and then catches up to the uh, to the latest he has and then you will start to play the match with a few seconds behind so that the, you know, as a watching player if I'm watching a live try to watch a live match I'll be watching actions maybe a few seconds behind uh, the real action happening mm. But at the same time, you can imagine once you have all the all the all the frames for uh, the same match, then people can just go back in time and watch other matches that uh, that I have played or you have played. Hmm. Okay, let's let's zoom out. You know, there's there's so much that we didn't cover technically wise in this show, but people can check out the talk that you gave, which I'll put in the show notes. But just to talk a little bit about. What is it like to work at a game company? I know nothing about that. I have done zero coverage of it. What's it like to work at, at a, a games company that makes these kinds of multiplayer games? Like my understanding is it's kind of a hits business where, you know, if you have a hit, it's really exciting and it's really difficult and it's really challenging and it's really fun. And if you have a non hit, it falls flat and it's 
kind of depressing and many people in the games industry go through both of these things so uh what's it like yeah yes yes absolutely is spot on when it comes to uh, it being a hit driven industry uh, it's very much that and uh, if you look at companies like Zynga, companies like King and Machine Zone, they've all become massive, massive company off the back of one hit, but they've all had many, many games in the past that hasn't been a, uh, that number one hit, and that's uh, you know, all you need is that one game to become to go from where we are at Space Ape to become a billion dollar company, but working for a games company you want to think, I guess you'll find that's, that's quite different from many other companies is that a you typically you find a very flat hierarchy and you find the game the uh, no, teams that are rather very often you find company that are building one product so that the whole company is 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 geared towards uh, optimizing for that one product but for games companies you have many games and uh, one of the things that you that comes up often for us is you know, how do we have that uh, uh, have that that drive for new ideas but at the same time, trying to focus our attention on the the, the good, the great idea that we think can become a top grossing game. So we so over the last eight to twelve months, we have created this uh, uh, some I guess uh, now it's more or less formal funnel where we have monthly game gens or hackathons that we run that allows that you know people would uh, would uh, go to you know, to a game jam they make uh, new ideas and that feeds into the top end of the funnel and based on usually based on some hypothesis that maybe there's a category there's a genre that's underserved but there's a massive market out there and then we create for going going from there you know maybe over the course of two or three game jams you you take the initial idea you polish it up to the point where okay you have something that is playable that can sh- you can you can that you can showcase to other uh, other people in the company and you, as you as you build up more and more confidence in the company that hey maybe this is something we can pursue then slowly we start to so sort of form teams around those ideas and we let them go wild and prototype and try out different ideas different game mechanics and whatnot and then you try to start to size the market try to test against the market do various tricks to see whether how much um, interest there are for the for maybe the theme or maybe the genre and then we keep going from there into making company playathon so that uh, you have a one day or two days and everyone just try to take part in the massive tournament inside the company to play your game give you feedbacks at the same time you can collect the metric to see you know how well how much how, how engaged are people and then you go to alpha and beta to get those external validation. Right now, of this whole funnel, we have one game that's in beta, and the game I'm working on right now is heading towards uh, the second alpha build uh, earlier next year. So, but at the top end, we probably had at this point eighty to ninety games, uh, different ideas. Wow. And one of the one of the great things, I think, one of the things that really stands um, both Supercell and Space Ape uh, games out from the competitor is in that. When you have ideas, it's not the CEO and you have you know people that formed those prototype teams to work on those ideas, and you, it's the team that decides what ideas to kill. It's not the CEO, it's not the the game designer, uh, but it's the team itself. 
and the team have to, has been responsible to say, okay, we've you know uh, actually this happened recently for one of the one of the teams that's been working on this this idea for maybe seven months, and that they eventually they you know they just said they just sit down and say, uh, well, we've tried so many things, but all these ideas we've tried, uh, we can't see us doing better than what's on the market already. So we're gonna disband the team and go back and get absorbed back into the company to work on various different things, mm. and. And that's something that the space aid does really well as well is in terms of uh, recognizing that you need to align personal interest with the company's vision of company's best interest. Uh, one of the things that I, I often ask employers when I was doing a lot of interviews after Apple uh, went under <laughs> is uh, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you make sure that people's best interest is uh, aligned with the company? And I think this is a problem that often Often the management don't recognize that everyone would just tell me, oh, it's not a problem when we make those uh, personal objectives, uh, what, 12, six months ahead of time. Yeah. We make sure everyone is aligned with the company's overall goal. But that's a very long time. And also, if everyone has got their own, and if everyone is, if you at the end of the six months or 12 month cycle, you're being, your performance review and your salary review is based on how you measure up to those personal objectives that is set by your manager, you know, six months to 12 months earlier, how do you then deal with the fact that what you're working on may not be in the best interest of the company or if you have to collaborate with another team and what the other team is working on is more important for the company's, for the company's future. But if you don't, if you work, if you help those guys out, now when it comes to end of year review, you'll be penalized for both your performance scores as well as your salary. And depending on the company, you may even be liable to be sacked if uh, you're working for uh, companies that are directly cold at what twenty, the bottom twenty five percent of the employees based on their performance score. So. Yeah, well, you bring up such a great point. And like, how do you build a company where creative destruction can happen is, 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 is a really important question to, to answer because developers are, they want to be artistic. They want to have, in fact, I think everybody, everybody who's a good employee, who is a, the type of people that you want to hire at a company are creative go-getters and they want they want to take ownership over a product. They want to they want to do creative stuff with it, but unfortunately, that can sometimes conflict with let's get the business done right. Like let's let's debug the thing that is really not fun. It's really annoying, but it is debugging our cash cow, which we need to do. And there's some trade offs that can occur there. You know, if you're an employee who only tries to launch new stuff and only tries to do creative stuff. And especially if none of those things take off, if you do that for a year and then during your performance review, they look into like, hey, did, did you actually like do anything? Did you actually debug anything? Then it's problematic. But of course, if you just have your employees debugging stuff, then it's equally problematic. So at a company, you need to figure out this mix of creative destruction and getting the business done. So yeah, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, Yen, it's it's been another uh, it's been another fantastic episode. I I love talking to you. <laughs> the time flew by, so that's always a good sign. Uh, I'm sure we'll do it again in the future. And I'm really happy that you've landed at a place where you seem you seem very gratified. Yes, yes, yes. it wasn't easy. It was, it was uh, the whole interview process was uh, pretty well. It was uh, let's just say I'm not looking forward to doing all these interviews uh, again soon. <laughs> okay.
<laughs> All right. Hopefully, you look at you look forward to the Software Engineering Daily interviews a little more. <laughs> oh yeah, these are great. <laughs> okay, great, Yen. Well, thanks a lot. Wow.